I don't think you need to tell people your per- personal thing, your personal body. <laughs> but I do really like that you guys are working together. That makes me really happy. You're listening to the Dude Nature Podcast. everyone welcome to the dude nature podcast really pumped for this episode we have the godfather of plant with us oh but before God. before we get to introduce him He's here adam yeah gripes digestion yeah um small small gripe today six dollars it seems like a little much for a chai right wouldn't you say six dollars is too much for a dirty chai how much yeah how much would you pay normally i want i want under four that's why I want for a good well, because dirty then you have that's room I'm willing to pay. Then you have room to leave a tip, right? If it's six dollars, you can't. It's just a lot. Do you leave tips at coffee shops? Not if it's six. Six is be, too much. Can I just be completely honest? Sure. I'll just be completely honest. Yeah. And I hope people don't hate me for this. Yeah. When they do like the the tip and they turn the screen around, mm-hmm. I don't leave tips at coffee shops. I I do absolutely. If it was four or five dollars, you have room. You leave a dollar. It's expected. It's an expected thing. What's your gripe? I don't think it is expected. What's your gripe? Um, now that we know you're an asshole, <laughs> dude, my gripe, my gripe, my gripe again is going to be the home workout videos is if there's just some way for me to not get really fat without having to do cardio, jumping up and down in my room, please let me know. But the air quality outside, I can't go run outside because the wildfires, I can't go anywhere inside because of Corona. So I'm just stuck doing the home workout video, which I literally hate. I just hate doing it for cardio. Strength workout's fine, but cardio jumping up and down is terrible. I, I find that the more you watch the same video, the more you start to pick up like really odd things that happening you don't like. Yeah, like someone getting water at a weird time or someone making a weird face. Also, when you're doing cardio and sweating that much in your own house, it's like the dog hair. You know, the dog hair gets all over me. Like my sweat gets like everywhere. It's like our guest bedroom. It becomes gross. Yeah, how's your digestion? It's it's been okay. It's, Everything's okay. It, it's been okay, honestly. It's tr- because I stopped drinking coffee in the morning. Was yeah. the caffeine episode? Right, right. It's now transferring to my workout. Gonna so be better after your chai. Hey, talk about chai. Hey, and things that are awesome. One thing I want to say about digestion before we move on is that bananas frequently thought to be, you know, a um, things that something that gets things moving. It's actually constipating. Is that scientifically, that? or is that just you? I was told that by an internist. That's what she said. Okay. Bananas. Don't eat bananas. Constipating. Don't eat bananas or constipating. Check up with the internist. Yep. Okay. Talk about things that are awesome. We're going to go back to chai. Talking about chai, Adam. Yeah. We have a very special guest. The godfather of plant. Marlon Matt Bruno. is the host of the long-running and very popular In Defense of Plants podcast. The dude loves plants. He knows everything about plants. Check out his podcast. Matt, what is up, man? How are you? Hey guys, I'm doing pretty well considering the state of the world, but uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yep. Matt, where are you right now? Are you in Buffalo? No, I'm in Central Illinois. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. not Buffalo. Cool. But I, you're not on fire right now. No, no. We are conspicuously absent in the fire realm right now. Yeah. Let me just say that it's like two blocks from my house to, to Adam's where we have the recording studio. And it like the... Air outside so bad that it almost hurts my eyes now. We're in Portland, Oregon. Wow. Yeah. I mean, my so heart goes out uh, to the west. It's it's so absolutely. bad that we've mismanaged things to this point. It's terrible. 
it's terrible that we have mismanaged them and now there's these huge fires and it's it's sad man yeah so again much love to anyone affected by the fires a toast a toast a toast matt if you have coffee or anything a toast to everyone fighting the fires everyone affected by the fires raising our glasses with raising our glasses raising it up over here raising it up Guys, in this episode, we're talking about how did carnivorous plants evolve, and I'm very happy to pick the Godfather's brand on this. Matt, do you mind if I call you the Godfather, the plant Godfather? Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So, Matt, can you give us like a basic rundown of how carnivorous plants come to be? Because it just seems so crazy that a plant would need to eat meat to survive or to, to be alive. Right. Well, it's hard to summarize across all of the carnivorous plants. All of the carnivorous plants in this world but one of the general unifying themes is that they tend to grow in soils that are extremely poor in nutrients so it's not that they have a hard time say photosynthesizing making sugars that they need to survive they have a hard time getting things like nitrogen and phosphorus that the soils just can't uh, provide for them okay so they need to beef up their nutrient intake Right, yeah. Generally speaking, across the board, anytime you see carnivory in plants, it's just for them to acquire the limiting nutrients that they need to survive. Oh, okay. So that was one of my first questions, is that if they primarily only eat meat, how could it be considered a plant? But you're saying that they also photosynthesize? Yeah, yeah. For the life of me, I can't think of a single example of a a non-photosynthetic carnivorous plant. Okay. So it's just like it's just an adaptation on top of what they usually do. So they're a plant, not really a fungus. Right. They are 100% plants. Uh, they have leaves. They can photosynthesize. They get all of their sugars and you know essentially the carbohydrates from that, and then they need to supplement the the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potentially other molecules. Those those sorts of nutrients through their their carnivorous diet. Okay. So when you when you say that they can't get uh the nitrogen and stuff normally right how do they beat out other plants for like competition in that same zone is it because there's like the soil is poor where they are and Uh, they're able to win by therefore by like eating bugs yeah yeah in a way i think a lot of times the habitats where they're growing have fewer species in them the species tend to be more specialized to that type of habitat but the fact that they can really grow in places uh, where nutrients are so limiting that most other plants can't uh, because they can, you know, supplement it that way. It does kind of give them a competitive advantage. But, you know, in a lot of cases, most examples I can think of, they're not uh, so intense in their growth habit that they're, you know, piling over all the other vegetation. They're just able to grow where a lot of other plants can't. Yeah, I see. And were carnivorous plants, were they always carnivorous? Or were they, like, did they start off being normal plants and kind of develop that trait? Like, how did they come to be as they are now? Great question. And what's really cool is that they have done a lot of work looking at the DNA of various carnivorous plants. And they found that most of the genes that are involved in their carnivorous habit, you know, being able to capture and digest animal materials, started as genes for defending themselves against microbes like fungi. It's pretty interesting that they were able to cool. kind of retool their genetic components to go from defense into actually capturing and digesting animals. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Adam? Uh, Matt, Matt, as a quick aside, so are you supposed to say the G in fungi, like g- general, like fungi, like you just said? 
uh, it's one of those things that I think it doesn't matter how you say it as long as you say it with some confidence. <laughs> <laughs> That's where everything Fun is in life. Guy. Right, right. Fun <laughs> guy. I've heard both, and I, I don't really bat an eye at either. Okay. Dude, so it's it started off actually being a defense mechanism, and it moved into this this way to to get more and more nutrients. What's your favorite carnivorous plant? Ooh, right that's now. that's a good. Right now, it's, give us it's, a couple. You can give us a couple if you want. I, I'm always partial to the butterworts in the genus Pinguicula and the tropical pitcher plants in the genus Nepenthes. There's a lot of both of those, but those umbrellas capture most of my favorites right now. I ride for pitcher plants. Yeah, the pitcher plants look really sick. Yeah, they just look amazing. They look yeah, they do when, especially when they're closed, when the lid lids on top mm-hmm. and it just pops open. I love that. Yeah. Matt, how does the pitcher plant work? Tell us about the pitcher plant. Well, it falls in, right? Yeah, yeah. You can think of pitcher plants first and foremost as just pitfall traps, like the Sarlacc pit in in Star Wars. The Sarlacc, that's a good way. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah, what's neat is that most of the pitchers, which is the active, uh, you know, capturing and digesting mechanism, they're just modified leaves, and they're usually brightly colored. They can sometimes smell really nice, and a lot of them secrete nectar or some other substance. So, in a lot of ways, the pitchers are mimicking flowers. They entice insects or other visitors to come and check them out, and in doing so, they often make mistakes, fall in, and then they can't get out. So the walls on the inside are usually either very slippery or covered in hairs that make escape darn near impossible. And then... And when they fall, when they fall in, how do they digest them? Yeah, uh, some are full of liquids that are full of you know enzymes, digestive enzymes that help break down a lot of different things, specifically chitin, which makes up the bodies of a lot of insects. But uh, some kind of weight. A lot of the the North American pitcher plants actually uh, in the South aren't always filled with water. They just kind of wait until they sense that there is something in there, and then they just kind of ooze digestive enzymes out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, what's the ke- what's the chemistry oh. behind them sensing there's something in there? Is it like a an in- how do they sense that there's a mass inside of itself? I yeah, good, another great question. Um, actually, studies on this go all the way back to like Darwin himself, uh, and he would put different things on different pitcher plants and uh, sundews, sticky traps, that sort of stuff. You know, hair, rocks, um, urine, uh, pieces of meat. And he was able to deduce that it's something about the, the proteins in the whatever content. So a rock isn't going to trigger that because there's no proteins mm-hmm. in the rock. But at, say, you know, a piece of meat or an insect or even human urine, a uh, droplet of that has protein in it. And those proteins, through some pathway that I don't understand, uh, send a signal to the plant that, hey, we've got something in here. Let's, let's kick up the, the digestion. Okay. Okay, gotcha. So speaking of pee-pee urine, I was reading this morning about a plant that, um, like, it will take dropping. It's a pit, species of pitcher plant. It will take droppings from an animal and break that down as well. It's like a toilet plant. Yeah, almost. yeah. I think uh, actually a few carnivorous plants have, have kind of gone to that strategy. If we're talking about how cool pitcher plants look, uh, there's yeah. a couple that are in Indonesia, you know, Southeast Asia, that have evolved to such a point that they no longer capture much of any insect prey. And instead, they really kicked up the production of like nectar or those sweet compounds that lures in things like tree shrews. And they sit on the lid of the pitcher and they lick 
uh, or they sit on the mouth of the pitcher and lick the the secretions off the lid. And as they do that, they're just pooping down into the pitcher plant. And so (laughs) if you think about it, they don't have to then invest as much in digesting an insect. You know, poop is already kind of pre-digested. So the nitrogen just becomes a lot more available to them. And it's hilarious to watch. Yeah. (laughs) The toilet plant. Yeah. Yeah. Toilet plant. Basically. That's amazing. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It does make sense. Dude, the, the crazy thing is, like, when I think about carnivorous plants versus non-carnivorous, I know this is, like, just me being a layman's perspective, mm-hmm. but it just seems like they're more complicated or, like, they're almost more, like, sentient. Obviously, they're not, but they're almost more sentient in a way. Obviously, I'm anthropomorphizing a lot, <laughs> but it seems like they're a more complicated plant. Is that true or not? Yeah, I, I don't think think there's anything wrong with kind of relating it in that way i like to anthropomorphize a little bit because plants can be kind of hard to relate to for a lot of people but you know in terms of what they need to do to survive and the way they've gone about doing it i mean these are highly derived structures you know pitchers sticky traps glands those sorts of things that a lot of plants don't have so in a way i think you're just seeing a lot of highly specialized highly you know what they call derived features in carnivorous plants that you know again because different plants grow in different environments they don't they've never had the pressure to evolve those sorts of things yeah and pitcher plants are really prolific aren't they like they're all over, like this design has really worked evolutionarily yeah it really has to the point that you know there's pitcher plants coming from vastly different orders of plant lineages it's not like they all share a common ancestor of evolution you know carnivory has evolved in um at least six different plant families and five-ish different plant orders so it's something that you know when a, a genome stumbles upon this can can kind of run like crazy not to say there are plenty of endangered carnivorous plants out there but carnivorous plants can be found all over the world in different forms okay so not just in the tropical zone right right i mean we have some here in north america you guys could go down to northern california and see a, a really cool native pitcher plant down there no way. Really? Yeah. 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 The uh, cobra lily, they call it. Darlingtonia. Ooh, the cobra lily. I feel like because like, whenever oh. you think about carnivorous plants, I immediately just think about the jungle. I think it's, <laughs> yeah. it's hard to recognize that a lot of them grow here where we are. Yeah, yeah. Surprising amount uh, do. And, you know, if you went to, say, Florida or Alabama, you would find a bewildering diversity of carnivorous plants of all different shapes and sizes. So it's not just tropical regions. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. I would have loved to see. I've just pulled up a picture of the cobra lily. This thing <laughs> looks awesome. It's got like a, it looks like a pitcher plant, but with a little like mouth tail yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. And it's like it's red. It's like a dragon's head. Yeah. It, it was like a, the head of a it dragon. It almost looks almost. like it would be on like a magic card or something. Yeah. I think it probably like, go, has shown up on some sort of mystical thing just because they look, <laughs> they look so badass. Yeah, that thing is sick. It is fucking awesome. Um, I, I want to ask you about the kind of efficiency that these carnivorous plants have. So we just, we went over that carnivorous plants need um, soil or they tend to grow in soil that isn't as rich in nutrients when they're breaking down this organic matter. Is that, um, is that more efficient than just being a better photosynthesizer or is it just a different and therefore they survive better? Well, I think it comes down to they're getting different things from different processes. Photosynthesis is only going to provide the plant with carbohydrates, so the sugars they need to survive, whereas most plants okay. either get you know nitrogen and other trace nutrients from the soil or the air. 
Uh, in the case of these, they're, they're, again, fully capable of producing their own carbohydrates, but they need things like nitrogen and phosphorus to build DNA and proteins. And so they're just supplementing it with that. And they're surprisingly efficient at it. And, you know, if you've ever grown carnivorous plants at home, the big thing to take away is you actually don't need to feed them for them. They'll do better. They'll probably flower more and produce more seeds, but they don't necessarily need it to survive. It just helps them along. Okay. Okay. What does your uh, carnivorous plant garden look like right now? Uh, probably at some of the lowest it's been over the years, but I do have a fair wow. amount of tropical pitcher plants uh, and some sundews, which are really fun, and a lot of butterworts, which are these weird little sticky uh, traps. That's your other favorite, right? Yeah, yeah, the pinguiculas. So what does that one do? Uh, you could think of them as a sticky trap. They look like little ro- like succulents. Uh, they produce these fleshy little leaves in a circle that lay flush with the ground, and they're just covered in sticky glands. And anything that's lured in by the, the promise of, say, water or nectar, because it gleans and looks really nice and, and enticing, gets stuck like uh, you know a mouse on a sticky trap and dies just as slow and painfully as a mouse Ew. on a sticky trap. Yeah. Oh, my God. Ew. Yeah. Is it the same kind of thing where digestive enzymes break it down? Like, I don't know why I, I thought that there was some sort of, like, st- uh, mouth with teeth breaking it down, <laughs> but that's not what happens. Yeah, it's entirely a uh, chemical breakdown. You know what's cra- when you look at like the most popular one, you know the Venus flytrap. Everyone knows what that is. I don't see where, so it closes its trap, right, mm-hmm. and then it in, it injects the enzymes into the critter, and then where does that liquid matter go? It just gets absorbed back into the walls of the plant. Yeah, it's pretty slow, and it's one of those that the presence triggers the the exudate the you know the, ex, the exudation. Ex, it triggers it to the release the enzymes. I guess is the best way I can put it right now. And it's it's probably not like it's filling up with liquid. It's probably just kind of coating it, making this soupy, viscous mix. Because uh, when mm. you watch them when they open back up after a meal, there's still a lot of hard parts and stuff. It just kind of looks like the thing has been sucked oh. dry. Oh. I wonder, what that, the... I wonder what that juice would taste like. like if oh, we could good drink question. That. Yeah. Dirty chai? Like a little dirty carnivorous plant juice? A little yeah. dirty juice. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so when it's liquefied, where does that liquid then go? So it gets, it gets the fly or whatever. It liquefies it. Does it just seep? How does that seep into the plant to then give it nutrients? Well, wherever the car, the trapping mechanism is, there's usually a, a second set of glands that are there to absorb uh, the the juices and the liquids and whatever else they're breaking down and so um, yeah you can kind of think of it almost as like your stomach lining it both releases things that help break it down and then has different sets of cells to then reabsorb it or glands in this case okay glands yeah. so we, we glands we've been through the pitcher plant right we've been through some basic strategies what are some other crazy carnivorous plant strategies that we're not thinking about that you could share with us well there's the sticky traps there's a lot of variations on that the sundews where they have the leaves that are covered in sticky glands that kind of wrap around the insect but some of the coolest uh yeah yeah yes yes, yes get to the coolest there's this is good stuff there's a, a genus that's i think pretty much south american and african in its distribution called genlisia and they use lobster pot traps. So they produce these leaves that function just like roots. They grow underground, uh, but they don't look anything like leaves. They just look like this weird corkscrew that's lined uh, with hairs all the way down. And if you look with a microscope 
at those lined areas, you'll realize that they're actually just entranceways, and it just it becomes this chamber that, like a lobster trap, little soil microbes and nematodes yeah. and worms and stuff can crawl into, but they have a damn hard time crawling back out. But they get to eventually the end of a chamber that is completely devoid of oxygen. So they get in there, they suffocate and die, and then the plant just goes, all right, time to digest you. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it chokes off their air. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, that's cool. it's pretty intense. So uh, it, intense. it creates a tunnel under the ground, basically, and then these worms and things that are burrowing, they, they, crawl, the right, they crawl right into it like a lobster trap. Yeah. They, get, they can't get back out, and then it just digests them. Yeah, yeah. It's It's it. got to be a horrible way to die. Uh, the others are the utricularias, yeah. the, the, they call them bladder warts, and again, another one you can find all the way up into, you know, way up in the northern hemisphere. They generally just float in the water, and their leaves are covered in these little bladders, and they're able to pump water out of them, like picture taking like a suction cup or something and just pushing all the water out of it, and then capping it, so you just have this vacuum seal. Well, as soon as something small enough oh. triggers the hairs, it deforms that lid and causes it to just go and sucks them in and it's one of the fastest reactions in the living world you have to have insane slow motion capabilities to capture it oh my god i'm looking at a picture of it right now yeah if you can find describe, videos Adam, of it describe. i really recommend it it looks like you know it's a it's a flower growing on top of the water it's not a lily pad but it's uh it has kind of a like a hand, it looks like a hand on the bottom of its roots and it has a nice yellow flower on top. It looks like a unassuming little plant. Yeah, they are very Sorry. unassuming. Yeah. What's the what's the biggest prey that a carnivorous plant can eat? Like what kind of size can we get up to here? Let's just ask the question. Can it eat a human? Uh no. <laughs> when is there going to be a, a be godfather? When's there going to be one that can eat a human? Yeah. Uh, we'd have to do some serious genetic modification for that. Um, but no, I, there, there has been historical reports and photographs taken of, uh, mice and rats in pitchers, um, in, in Southeast Asia, at least where the largest pitcher plants are. I have heard rumors. I have never seen this confirmed that a botanical garden in either the Philippines or Thailand would have to go through every morning and take small monkeys out of the cups that had fallen in and drowned because monkeys will actually use the cups to drink and and get meat out of. That is unconfirmed. But I myself have seen a pitcher plant with a hummingbird almost completely digested in it. Oh, my God. Wait. Oh my God! Was yeah. it was it a red? A, oh yeah, it is a little bit red, right? What are hummingbirds like to pollinate? Uh, generally red? speaking, red, brightly colored stuff. But I mean, they're visiting yellows, pinks, purples, and blues in my garden right okay. now. But uh, this was a deep red pitcher plant, and you could tell it was just kind of trying to sit nectar off the lid. Probably tried to land and just oh slip down in. Yeah. Did you see it like when it was undergoing the digestive process? Yeah, I saw it mostly digested by oh, the time no. I got there and saw it. Uh, it. It was pretty brutal, but also one of those moments where you go, oh, yeah, this is a plant eating something with vertebrae. There's a great um, Reddit channel called Nature is Metal. Have you <laughs> guys ever that. seen it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you've <laughs> no, seen it? It's, it's amazing. It just like, like the picture yesterday was a deer with just a wolf's carcass on its horns. It's just like some really fucked up shit. It's all the yeah. stuff. Really the fucking major stuff. The yeah. nature documentaries won't edit in. They cut that stuff out and then they send it to <laughs> yeah. nature as metal. It's so <laughs> that good. Is so no, funny. you need to follow it. It's good. Yeah, yeah, dude. But there are some animals that actually live inside the pitcher plants, right? Like I yeah. saw like a crab inside of a pitcher plant. Yeah, yeah. There are a few species. 
actually there's a lot of species of pitcher plant that have these weird mutualistic interactions and it's either because they have partnered with animals that can somehow resist the digestive enzymes or in a lot of cases there's some pitcher plants that just as they get older stop doing as much of their own digesting and instead rely on the organisms living in their pitchers to do it for them so again breaking things down eating it and pooping it out but there is a pitcher plant native to borneo that has completely forgone all digesting of its own in fact it just sits with its pitchers wide open to the environment and it has the least amount of digestive enzymes of any of the pitcher plants. And yeah, everything from crabs to one of the smallest species of frogs in the world set up shop in there, breed and live out their lives in these pitcher plants, helping them by breaking down materials and pooping in the pitchers in the process. (laughs) That's so crazy. It's like a middle stage. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things that like, the amount of funding and attention paid to this has been very little from a scientific perspective. I feel like the more people get out and start studying this stuff, the more weird shit we're going to find. Absolutely. Yeah. This this is like, this reminds me of um, something we were talking about in another episode. It's called the tongue eating louse. Matt, have you heard of this? Uh, I have heard of it actually. I've been watching oh a God, lot of Nautilus live. <laughs> <laughs> This is like a nice version of that where the louse goes up into the fish, eats the tongue, and then sits there acting as the organ of the tongue. Yeah, they do a little less damage in the beginning than the louse. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't like pretend to be an organ. Yeah. Oh. Um, okay, let's see. Oh, I wanted to ask you, um, <clears throat> with these carnivorous plants, is there a singular ancestor that we can point to for some of them, or are they all just on a disparate chain? Nope, they're all, well, there's, within groups there are, but yeah, there's, like I said, there's at least six different families coming from okay. at least five different orders, so no, you can't draw a line to a single common ancestor for all of them, but for some you can. Okay, okay. And the last thing I wanted to ask about the these specific plants is that, um, oh God, where was it? Um, oh yeah. Okay. So we were, we've just been reading a lot about tree communication and kind of the study of mycorrhizal networks and how mm. that's leading to our understanding of sentience and stuff. That's why Noah asked that question. Is there anything like that happening with carnivorous plants? Well, the issue with the off. tree stuff is I think it's been very poorly interpreted in the popular literature. I think the science of it is pretty okay. good, but, um, you know, I think more often it's the fungus doing all of the trading among trees And, you know, in terms of like sentience and plant communication, yes, plants are alive. They are interacting with the world around them. They compete with each other. They can facilitate and help each other out at times. It's really in its infancy in our understanding of it. And I think, sure, in a situation where plants are growing in proximity to each other, carnivorous plants could have some form of chemical communication amongst each other. Um, The fungal thing is interesting because as far as I know, I don't think many carnivorous plants actually partner with mycorrhizal fungi just because of the limitations of the habitat and they've already found other ways of getting the nutrients they need so i i would love to know if anyone's got information on that i i'm speaking out of you know my realm here but yeah i mean everything living has to interact with its world so i wouldn't be surprised but you know in terms of what it means and what conclusions we can draw i'm hesitant to say much at that point okay yeah i couldn't find anything this morning either have you have you heard of uh you probably heard of this uh the hidden life of trees 
Peter Wallenberg. That's the book that we were referencing where we kind of talked about. Yeah, I, I, consciousness. I want to know I your tr- thoughts on it. I tried reading it. It's it, if it gets people excited about plants, I'm all for it. I think he took a lot mm-hmm. of liberties and it's very, you know, what I would call scientifically anemic. Um, but it's better than something like the private life of plants. And so I think in a lot of ways, he got a whole new generation of people interested in botany, especially when it comes to trees and forest stuff. But I think mm-hmm. uh, it really didn't portray it in what I would consider a really scientifically accurate way. But again, I'm OK with some anthropomorphizing, too. you got to let the story uh, breathe a little bit. And if people can relate better that way, so be it. Got to pump people up about the plants. Yeah. Um, dude, I have a question for you. If you had an unlimited budget, let's say someone was like, man, I'll give you any money that you want. You can study this one thing about carnivorous plants or whatever. What would you do? I would just fly and and go all over Southeast Asia and study all of the weird relationships that the tropical pitcher plants have with insects like ants and flies and, and all of the weird things that can live in their pitchers. I think it is an amazing line of research. I actually had uh, Dr. Kadeem Gilbert on my podcast in recent weeks talking about some of his work, looking at just microbial life in pitchers. But again, like I said, there's been so little information on this and so little field work devoted to studying these plants in the wild feel like that would be such a good use of money in terms of trying to discover new things about the way life interacts with each other. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an interesting relationship because these these plants, they can digest them at, at one point, but also there's a lot of organisms that live in the middle of them. Yeah, and they also need them for pollination too. So there's a big realm of study trying to understand how plant carnivorous plants kind of balance the need for insects to pollinate their flowers, but also the need to eat them. Oh, absolutely. I didn't think of that. Yeah, that is amazing. And when you're talking about ants in the pitchers and these carnivorous plants, is there just one ant or is it like a whole hive kind of maintaining them? Oh, it is. It is a myriad. It's it's probably the full spectrum of things you can imagine. Um, I've talked to Stuart McPherson a little bit and he's like a world renowned Nepenthes expert. And he said, you know, every species of tropical pitcher plant I look at seems to have its own set of ants that associate it with it to the sole exclusion of other plants. Um, and it goes all through different levels. I mean, there's ones that just kind of hang out and eat stuff that goes down into the pitcher and they poop a little bit in the pitcher. There's ones that keep the pitcher mouth clean because they know if the plant captures some prey, they inevitably can get some prey. And then there's crazy specific interactions like the fanged pitcher plant from Borneo it produces these oh. weird fangs at its top. But it, 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 the tendrils that produce the pitchers are hollow and ants actually set up colonies inside of that. So... The plant has has tied the entire survival of the ant colony to its survival. So the ants go crazy protecting the plant, cleaning the plant, yeah. and keeping herbivores at bay. Uh, it is it is amazing to think of what other things exist out there in that realm. That's so incredible. I mean, I think that's just a really underreported and understudied kind of area, at least for the public, is that the interactions between plants and other things. I mean. It's just amazing. We've been getting into it a little bit recently. Yeah, and I'm really happy that you guys have been because I agree. I think it is really underappreciated, but it's it's one of those things that as soon as people hear about it, they're like, oh, my God. It's just the problem is, is when most people talk about plants in the popular realm, they're talking about food and medicine, which is fine. But those shouldn't dominate the entire conversation. I mean, as we're learning together right now, like plants are doing 
just as, if not more incredible things as most other organisms on our planet. And they're doing it in ways that are so alien because they're, you know, sessile. They don't have brains. They can't get up and move. It's it's a very different yeah. world. Um, I was thinking that maybe one of the reasons I was just speculating why it would be hard to kind of study these relationships is because it's so interconnected in the web. Like, how are you going to pitch that as a study of research? Maybe it's a limit of the scientific method. I don't know. Well, I don't think it's necessarily hard in terms of the scientific method. I mean, people are doing great stuff in a lot of uh, systems, a lot of habitats with a lot of different plants. I think a lot of it is that it's not something that can be done easily or cheap uh, without taking the plants outside of their habitat. But as soon as you take a plant from, say, the forests of Borneo and bring it to a greenhouse, say, here in Illinois, you've removed it from Uh its context. And it's really hard to convince, you know, the natural the National Science Foundation or some other grant funding agency to give you thousands of dollars just to fly, get a guide, go to these mountaintops with small sample sizes. You know, it's just it's cost prohibitive at this point, And we don't value that form of curiosity. The NSF and other grant funding agencies want to see more takeaway uh, instead of just like curious natural history sort of stuff. So a lot of it really just kind of just down to like our really poor view of scientific funding. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I gotcha. So if you're studying it in the field in context, it's just a lot more expensive. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really expensive. I mean, just going to visit for vacation, you can imagine how hard that is, but then add all the other expenses of doing science to that. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Noah, you have a question? Yeah. So I want to get back to the ants, the ants and the pants, the ants, ants and, and the, the plants. plants. Yeah. Ants and the pants. <laughs> it rhymes So too. certain ants. Yeah, it, it does. I'm a rapper. <laughs> Amateur. So certain certain <laughs> certain ants pick like certain species of um pitcher plant to live in and just that species of ant and that species of pitcher plant have that kind of relationship? Is it like very specific like that? I I'm fascinated by the ants and the pitcher plant. Ants the, and the pants. The examples I am most aware of are species specific. One type of ant, one type of pitcher plant, but again, for as much as we know about that, it could be a whole spectrum of things. Until we go and look, it's hard to say. Yeah. I just think that's I think that's super cool. I think that's crazy. I would love to know more about that. Yeah, if you go down the rabbit hole on this, you'll find that plants and ants have a lot of weird interactions. Some good, some not good, some parasitic, some very symbiotic, mutualistic sort of stuff. It's, it's amazing how these two... Um, types of organisms have converged in so many different examples in so many different parts of the world. How, speaking of the relationship between these plants and insects, have any insects developed defenses for these plants, like flies and such? Um, yeah, so there is, at least in the North American pitcher plant, uh, the purple pitcher plant it's commonly called, there is a fly that lives out its its larvae live out their lives in the fluid of the pitcher plant, and it's immune to its digestive juices. It eats a lot of its prey. It does give back in the form of poop, but when it's done, and mm-hmm. it's ready to pupate and become an adult fly, it just chews a hole in the side and escapes out that way. And so it just completely <laughs> so it, it's ruins to its enzymes. Yeah, it completely ruins the that pitcher's uh, future in terms of being able to get more nutrients for the plant. So it's it's you know pretty one-sided after a certain point for that one um and then there's um there's another group of uh carnivorous plants they what do they call them i i'm sorry i apologize i don't remember the name but there's a whole group of them that have 
the ability to capture prey on their leaves, but they have no ability to digest it itself. But there is another yeah. type of bug, a true bug related to like the stink bugs that is completely immune to the stickiness. It can walk all over the sticky traps, not get caught. And it eats, it sticks its little proboscis in and drains the, the prey, the captured insects of all of their juices. But in the process is, oh, pooping, wow. is pooping on the leaves and the, pitch, the, the carnivorous plant can actually <laughs> absorb some of that poop. So it is actually more of mutualism. Uh, you know, when people started to kind of zero in on it. So there are, there's been what probably started off as cheating that kind of just evolved its way towards more of a mutualistic reaction. And then, of course, there's tons of stuff that can just reach in and steal. There's spiders that steal uh, prey from pitcher plants. Really? Cause they, yeah, because they can, like, put a little line of silk and kind of uh-huh. uh, belay their way down into the pitcher, grab a piece of prey, and then get back <laughs> out pretty Cavers. easily. And then, um, you know, as I'm talking, I'm coming up with more examples. Uh, there is this really cool interaction between lynx spiders, these really pretty green spiders, and the pitcher plants in Florida and Alabama, you know, the southeastern coast of North America. And they just build their spider webs at the mouth of the pitcher plants, knowing that the pitcher plants are what are going to attract the prey. And then they just capture everything that would otherwise end up in the pitchers. <laughs> Oh god, those smart spiders! I know it's like its own little pitcher plant world. Yeah. Oh yeah, like they, this whole little ecosystem within within that. It's it's a it's a realm of study in and of itself. Is just organisms that live out their lives inside of other organisms. Tongue eating louse, Matt. Exactly. No, about that. I don't want to. I don't want to think yeah. about that anymore. <laughs> I hate that thing. Yeah, I'm glad it doesn't yeah. happen to us. I <laughs> I hope. I wonder if it could. I mean, I hope not. Yeah, I'll never uh, say for sure in biology. <laughs> I'll let you know if it happens to me. Noted. Yeah, yeah, a warning, yeah. if you will. Yeah, dude. While, while we have you here, I I wanted to ask this because this is something that me and Adam will always think about. Um, and I saw that you had written like a a short blog on cannabis. How did marijuana or cannabis evolve to produce THC? I know we're jumping from carnivorous plants, but it's something that like I don't understand why it would have those kind of properties. Quick and dirty version. Just, yeah. I, just need, I need it from the Godfather. I need to know why this happens. Yeah, we couldn't let you go without asking that. Sure, sure. No, great question. I love this plant. I actually just saw it in the wild, quote unquote, for the first time. Me too. Um, and so, yeah, basically the, the, the long of the short of it is we still have a long way to go in our understanding of that uh, and what this plant is doing just because we've demonized the species for so long that, you know, scientific research on it has been extremely limited. But what we do know is that there's these uh, cannabinoid receptors in the brains of most organisms. I mean, insects all the way up to us. It's why that molecule interacts with our brains so well. But if you look at what sort of these terpenes are doing, where they're located on the plant, they're most often on the reproductive organs, which is why you're smoking flower, the buds, the flower buds where the seeds are. Interesting. Okay. And so the, the, combination of like the fact that these receptors are highly prevalent in a lot of walks of life but also heavily produced in the reproductors i think it's all defense thc along with a lot of other compounds that marijuana or or cannabis is producing i think mostly they're there for defense in some degree either against herbivory or uh, microbial attack yeah, so to make so basically like if an animal comes along and eats it, they'll have like a nasty they'll have the high sensation which then would be horrible. 
Or uh, now? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say what they're feeling. I think, you know, it just so happens that it fits into this receptor in our brains and produces this. But then again, as, as sad as it is, you've seen videos of like dogs or cats that have gotten into edibles and it doesn't look like they're having a good time. And anything that kind of knocks oh. an organism out from being kind of aware of its environment is probably going to lead to its death in the wild. So it's possible that that's what it's doing to insects and other herbivores. But I honestly don't know. It would be really interesting to watch like deer after they've consumed a ton of Nibble. outdoor. <laughs> yeah, I thought happens. I thought that the like it needed to go through a chemical change to release THC, but that's just not true. I th- again, I, mean, I to be fair, I do not know, so it's hard to say. I I just know that it's it's kind of happenstance that it locks into the receptors that we have okay. for it, Ta- but. Talk about animals and eating edibles. When me and Adam were growing up once, um, our dog ate seven really, really powerful crazy uh, brownies. No, that like, brownies. yeah, I know. Oh, buddy, no human could eat a full one. Like we would eat a half, and my dog ate basically fourteen doses of that. <laughs> oh man, um, poor Ozzy. Yeah, he was. I remember like going up to. He was in our room, and our two friends were petting him, and he was just like comatose. We had to bring him to the vet. And the vet said that, like, we grew up in Northern California, said that in Marin County, this was very common. Mm. Saw this all the time. Yeah, I don't The smell that. must be okay. incredibly strong for them because it's the brownie and the, and the plant. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad he's okay. But, yeah, I, I know. My, my child, one of my childhood dogs, Chloe, uh, we rescued her from my cousin, and it was just a bad situation overall. But she was always kind of a weird dog, like – just something was off in a good way. Very kind, very sweet, very gentle dog, but just off a little bit. And I remember having a conversation with my mom. She goes, oh yeah, Chloe used to get into their weed and eat it all the time. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yep. Maybe that explains yeah, something. Oh, no, I get it. Dude, yeah. our dog was never the same afterward, to be completely honest. He always oh. was kind of a little bit spacey, spacey afterward. You could imagine it being like the hardest acid trip ever for a Oof, creature eating yeah. that much weed oh brownies. God. A little too much. So sad. Yeah. That was really weird when we came home one day. He was just sitting on the couch watching uh, Cheech and Chong. That yeah, eating odd. Cheetos. That was really weird. <laughs> yeah. Muzzle is all stained with Cheeto dust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, buddy. Uh, I'm going to assume that that like with with uh, with peyote or like shrooms, um, it's probably a defense mechanism as well. That's yeah, probably like why caffeine, it the right? effects. Like caffeine? Yeah, like caffeine. Yeah, yeah. I would assume. Maybe. I mean, the... the most cacti, a lot of cacti, I should say, have some pretty toxic chemicals of which, you know, whatever, uh, what is it, I'm mescaline is the active ingredient. I'm sure they're all involved with either some sort of metabolic process or defense in some way. Uh, sometimes with, you know, a lot of cases, like caffeine, for example, it can be a lot of different functions too. So, you know, plants are really good at kind of multitasking in that way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just to wrap us up a little bit and to bring us back to carnivorous plants, for those of us, especially me, that want to start a carnivorous plant kind of garden like you have, yeah. what are some like great websites we should go to and what are some plant species we should get for beginners? Uh, for beginners, I would say avoid the very quintessential Venus flytraps, pitcher plants. Those can be a little tricky. They like to have some sort of dormancy, and that's really hard for people to get their head wrapped around. And till this day, I still have trouble with it. Um, your best bet uh, right out of the gates is either a butterwort or okay. a what they call a Cape Sundew. Cape Sundew is a beautiful species. It's from South Africa, so it doesn't need dormancy. And its leaves move when they capture prey. So it's one of those things that's like got all the best parts of what it means to be a carnivorous plant. And it's extremely easy to grow. 
Um, and then the most important thing you need to realize is again, because these plants grow in nutrient poor soils that are really only watered by rain, they cannot handle tap water. They do not like chlorine, fluorine, or any minerals. So you have to give them distilled or rainwater, uh, which is kind of an issue for a lot of people. But again, you can buy distilled water. You can collect rainwater if you live in an area that gets enough precipitation. But just keep those in mind and never use fertilizers on them if you can help it. I, I use uh, coconut coir and perlite. So coconut coir is just the ground up husks of uh, coconut production. And perlite is a mineral that looks like styrofoam. It's those white little chunks that you see in the soil. I put about a one-to-one -one mix of those in so that it retains moisture but has enough air reaching the roots. And yeah, put them in a sunny windowsill. If you go with either the Mexican butterwort species or the Cape sundew, uh, they're very mm. forgiving. And you know, as long as you follow those simple rules, I recommend checking out uh, carnivorousplants.com, I believe. I can send you the link so you can add the proper one. And pick up Peter D'Amato's book, The Savage Garden. Uh, he's from the San Francisco Bay Area, and he is like the godfather of carnivorous plants. He's really, him along with Damon Collingsworth, have really made them um, way a, a bigger part of the hobby. They've made them sustainable part of the hobby. They're producing their own. They're growing their own. You know, they're not ripping them out of the wild. And uh, they're really knowledgeable, and they want you to succeed. They want you to be able to grow these plants. So pick up The Savage Garden by Peter D'Amato. Oh, I really want to grow. So you said butterwort, not bladderwort. Butterwort. You can grow the, the bladderwort. It'll just take more of like an aquarium setup. Oh, that'd be awesome. I love aquarium stuff. No, oh, well, there you go. Yeah, just get yourself a little 10-gallon, put a decent, you know, filter on there that's not going to suck them all up and, you know, see what species you can get your hands on. With a bit of light, they should do just fine. Awesome. Love it. Dude, for our listeners, for us, book <laughs> recommendation. What is your what is your favorite book on whatever can be anything? Oh man, I'm a huge science fiction nut, and I recently got into the work of Stanislaw Lem, who is a Soviet era sci fi writer from Poland. Uh, I highly recommend his Master's Voice. Um, and if you like science in your science fiction, if you yeah. want a science fiction book that's really believable and really introduces you to some bizarre alien concepts, um, mm -hmm. you should check out Blind Sight by Peter Watts, I believe his name is. Blindside is one of the best science fiction, realist science fiction books. And I've wanted to read that. I've wanted to read that for a while. Yeah, yeah he's a PhD in marine biology. So he's someone that understands sort of evolution and how or organisms work. And, you know, it's one of those books where you're reading about these aliens and these, these encounters they're having. And it's it truly feels alien. It's not like, oh, they speak this language and they have a culture like ours. It is alien and it makes you feel weird. And I love that. That's so awesome. Dude, have you ever have you ever read Children of Time? Who's that by? I have, yeah, Art yeah. Adrian that was another that was, uh, yeah. Arthur C. Oh, yeah. No. It was, what am I, I thinking I of? Then? No, never mind. You're thinking of older one, maybe. This is a newer, newer. It's okay, with no, the, uh, I've not read it's that one. Spiders. It was Spiders. Yeah, you would like that. I think oh, you'd like okay. that one. I'll check it out. Um, Thank you. Dude, thanks so much for coming on. Love talking to you. Where can people find you? Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. It was really cool to be invited. Uh, you can find me at indefensiveplants.com. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube by the same name. Just look up Indefensive Plants and you'll find it. Uh, podcast is on every major podcatcher out there from iTunes to Spotify and even Pandora. I just got added to Pandora. I didn't know Pandora was doing podcasts. Yeah, which if what? you guys haven't, get in on that. 
That's that, crazy. I, I didn't, didn't know, know that, that at all. all. Yeah, I, me too. I just want to say for our listeners, sometimes I just like when I go to my computer, I go to your Facebook because you post all the time and I just scroll down and then it's 45 <laughs> minutes later. <laughs> I'm like, I, got, I need to, I need to get to work. Uh, that's great. Thank you, you do a great job posting stuff. It's awesome. Very I really prolific. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a labor of love. I really like being steeped in it and I like talking about it. So why not, you know, post it. Awesome. Well, Matt, dude, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate yeah. Thank it. you both. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. It's great. Thank you, Matt. That was awesome. Uh, yeah. I learned a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about pitcher plants, and I really, really want to grow some so badly. <laughs> well, they're fairly easy. Again, if you could just kind of get past that dormancy stuff, they're they're not too bad. It's just a few extra things you have to keep in mind. So, you know, for beginners, it's not the first thing I'd recommend, but I, I'd go for it because they're really easy to grow for the most part, and they're pretty widely available these days. Okay. I think I'm, I'm going to do the butterwort. Adam, first. Yeah. what can the people do to support the podcast, support our podcast? Oh, what's the one thing you'd ask them? Hey, guys, for our podcast, please go to iTunes. Give us the five-star ratings. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. If you're on your phone, you see that five-star, just hit that five right now. I know you're looking at it. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Thank Love you, Matt. You